you know, don't sell me on your little witchcraft trickery and the weirwoods. I don't want to any of that. You bring my friend back from the dead five or six times, like Barrick, sign me up. Welcome back to On the Throne, Shad on TV's Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Roger Roper, and alongside me are my two co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And Gene Jorah Mormont Lyons. That's not me. And this is our deep dive episode where we share our insights, research, and opinions on this week's episode of Game of Thrones. This week's episode was entitled Stormborn. Daenerys plans out her overthrow of Westeros, but her plan has a rough start. Jon faces down a possible revolt. Sam's medieval treatment of Jorah Mormont displays the danger of catching STDs in Westeros. Grey Worm and Missandei teach us the proper way to make love. The Lannisters hold court, and Euron Greyjoy uses the Black Pearl to literally silence Yara, Ilaria, and Theon and send thousands of their sailors to Davy Jones' locker. Guys, our Instacast was chock full of nothing but positives for this episode upon our first watch. What did you guys think going back and watching it a second time? I think predictably uh, it was more enjoyable the second time around. You picked up on a lot more uh, details. It did cause a couple of questions that I lost in the blitz of action and uh, and intrigue that was going on. And the second time around, there were a few flaws that we picked up on, but mostly, uh, you know, great job of answering a lot of questions and kind of bringing some prophecies to light. I enjoyed it more you know, on a whole the second time through. I was able to enjoy the the naval battle much more. I wasn't overwhelmed by the chaos of the fighting, uh, but also I found a couple minor flaws. The Sand Snakes, uh, I thought the dialogue was terrible. I thought they completely betrayed the characters. It was tough to watch. You know, they, they came onto the show to a, a lot of fan uh, ire and, and, and disdain, and I think they went out the same way. They were, they were the worst part of the episode. But other than that, still loved it. All right. Well, if you've never listened to On the Throne, Shad on TV's Game of Thrones podcast, here's how the format goes. We're not going to do what other podcasts do, which is break down the episode in a linear scene-by-scene format and take up two hours of your night. We're going to use about 60 minutes and talk about big overarching plot points, ideas, uh, possible uh, outcomes for what we just saw in the episode. And then we, on Thursday, will do the small council where we take the best emails from you, the audience, and we read and respond to those. But you can find Find all of our listener feedback on our website, shoutontv.com. Just search for the small council there. That being said, Gene, what are the topics we have on for tonight? We're going to start with the opening credits, take another look at what we're seeing there and some of the symbolism in the opening credits of this episode. Uh, from there, we'll go to Dragonstone and talk about uh, the, the great plan for uh, the Mother of Dragons and whether Danny will be a diplomat or a dragon, as she's encouraged to do. I uh, will talk about uh, Melisandre's prophecy and what it means for John and Danny. Uh, also, going to talk about uh, people not believing Jon Snow and, and what that means for Westeros. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Littlefinger's uh, betrayal and, and, and whether he's testing John. And get into what I really wanted to talk about this episode was Randall Tarley, uh, why he is a character to watch, why he could be one of the biggest characters of the season. Uh, also going to talk about the most searched for term on the internet, apparently, eunuch, and why why is such a hot term right now this week, and uh, and get really into the guts of that amazing naval combat we saw aboard uh, the Silence uh, attacking Theon Greyjoy's ship. 
So with that being said, let's dive right in. So the first thing that we've got here on the outline is those changed opening credits. Big D, you were the first one to point this out to Gene and I. Well, we got several viewers written in, and it was you know in a few publications. I'm always trying to watch the the opening credits to see if anything changes. And this one slipped by me the first time. Second time I saw it. When we get up to the wall, you can clearly see that the sea or the Bay of Seals has frozen over on the eastern side of the wall. So now there is a solid landmass. It appears that possibly the White Walkers won't even need to break through the wall, knock it down, that they could just walk around it. But it was a nice, subtle change that if you're not paying attention, you would have missed it. Yeah, it's like the Maginot line of uh, Westeros defenses. And a lot of people had written in and said that they believe, based on the shape of the what is predicted as the arrow-shaped mountain, that it was going to come from the west, actually. But this seems like it's giving an indication that East Watch by the Sea is the way they're going to go. So essentially what they're saying is that now that the 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 water has frozen over, they can just walk over it. Why didn't they do this before? What was preventing them from doing this before? Well, this only happened in between episode one and two. Episode one, it was still water. So they're telling us now that even though we haven't seen the Whites and the White Walkers moving south, that they are closing in on Eastwatch. Uh, so it is a logical place now that we know a lot of our characters are heading that way. Uh, that uh, you know this will be a focal point, even though we didn't see it. We now know it's happened. And I think another point of question was you know regarding some other things that people pointed out. First of all, thank you to everyone who wrote us email and said, "Hey, dipshits!" You know some of these. You know it was already uh, Winterfell was already in a in in Stark hands in season six, according to the uh, according to the opening credits. But another thing that was pointed out was this was the stag that's still in King's Landing, and people were looking for an explanation for that. Yeah, so I had questioned that also. You know, the first time we saw it, that why haven't they switched it over to the lion uh, for Lannisters? And the reason being is that Cersei ostensibly is a Baratheon. She married Robert. Uh, her family also are Baratheon children. So even though we associate her as a Lannister, she still theoretically as a ruler is is ruling under the the banner of of Baratheon. And people are going to challenge. They're going to say, well, hey look behind the Iron Throne, and they've replaced the star with the Lannister Lion. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, the guys over at HBO just uh, are trying to make a point that it's not what she considers herself, but it's what uh, you know history in Westeros considers her. So moving from the Queen in King's Landing to the Queen in Dragonstone, Danny is holding court. Uh, she's planning out her overthrow of Westeros. She's given advice by Tyrion, uh, by pretty much everyone, Varys, uh, Elena, but uh, upon second viewing, did you guys pick up on anything different that, that you may have not picked up on the pun first watch? So, yeah, on the Instacast, Big D talked about uh, the Lannisters appealing to xenophobia and, and a fear of the other to sort of rally the lords of uh, Westeros to their aid against this invading force that was coming across the ocean. The first time the Dothraki had, had arrived on Westeros' shores. And, you know, we, we talked about that, but what we didn't really explore is that Game of Thrones here has taken an unorthodox stab at showing how the politics and, and, and twisting events uh, can impact the reputation of a leader. This is pretty sophisticated writing here. So Cersei says to the people that uh, Daenerys fed people to dragons, she crucified lords. That's all true. I mean, the context isn't there, but it, but it's true. And so what we're seeing here is that this may be the same sort of treatment that's been laid upon rulers before her, but it also may belie a certain cycle of leadership that perhaps Daenerys goes from underdog 
to hero to idealist and eventually you know queen and then tyrant uh, it, it is possible that she is falling into the same pitfall as predecessors in her bloodline or other kings and queens of Westeros and and it might be the lesson there is that you know in flying in contrast to the idea of these generations being better than generations before them maybe these are just cycles that are unavoidable uh, in a monarchy or in this sort of in this universe so one of the other points that that I said yesterday the the underlying theme of the episode was today in the past and also learning from your lessons one of the lessons learned that I failed to pick up on was Lady Olena. Now, she was known as the Queen of Thorns because as the elderly matriarch of House Tyrell, she was the master of court, politics, intrigue. She used her wit and intellect and sarcasm to gain and control and keep power. So she taught Marjorie the same thing. And Marjorie led with love. And Lady Olena says, what did that get her? In the end, it got her nothing. It got her death. She said, the lords of Westeros are sheep. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. She references also the fact that no matter at any point in history, that even if there was peace, peace never lasts. So what I thought yesterday was maintaining who you are and staying true to yourself. No, she wants to rain fire. She wants her to bring the hammer and she wants her to control, not by love, but by fear. It was a lesson she learned the hard way. And so we look at, you know, Tyrion and, and, and Varys giving her good counsel, but at the same time, it might be the wrong counsel. We see that they have reached out to Jon Snow, and he is going to answer that call that he is going south to, to meet with them. Is this a good thing for Jon or a bad thing? Okay, well, let me ask you guys this. Do you believe that the failure of the Greyjoy ships was strictly just because Euron is a fantastic sailor and pirate? Or do you think that there's a traitor amongst Danny's missed. No, there's no traitor. Everyone in that room has a true reason to despise Cersei and want her dead. Uh, no one in that room would benefit from betraying Daenerys. So I don't think so. I think you're just dealing with Euron, who's a master of the sea. Okay. And, uh, All right. And I, I think it was just he went out to get his prize, to get his gift. Uh, and you don't screw with him in the silence when they're in the open sea. Okay, but but stay with me on this. What if there was someone on Danny's small council that would profit from the destruction of that fleet? And I point to that person as Olena. Now, Olena doesn't want to use her own army, right? She'd rather make her use her dragons, divert them from Casterly Rock to use them on King's Landing. I think Olena might be smarter than we all know. Nobody's underestimating her. She's one of the the brightest characters that we've come across. No, we're not. But I got to tear apart your theory here fairly quickly, unfortunately. Okay, number one, you're asking how could they stumble upon each other? They're both going to the same place. They're both going to Dorne, okay? So you had Euron who was hunting to get his prize uh, going to Dorne. And then you also have Yara going back to Dorne as well to pick up the Dornish army. So it would make sense that these two giant armadas would cross paths. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Then you also said uh, she wants Danny to now go attack and, and lay waste to King's Landing. Unfortunately, you need those same ships that just got burned to get your troops over to King's Landing. So the fleet being destroyed in the open sea does not help Elena at all. 
I think if there were any sort of a traitor in there, it could be Varys. I mean, he's shown that he is flexible when it comes to his allegiance. And, and we see that scene between the two of them, which a lot of people have pointed out, you know, the scene between Varys and Danny is a little odd in the fact that why would she have brought him along this far without having this question of loyalty? You know, uh, it seems a little late in the game for this conversation, but it was a great scene. And so we'll, we'll forgive that. But, you know, again, of all the people, if anybody were to betray, I would say that it would be him, but I I don't see it that way. It is, we've been talking about Euron Greyjoy showing why he is so feared. and, And this is why he's just really fucking good at what he does. Yeah, Varys, I don't buy it. From the beginning, I felt if there was one person who should be leading the Seven Kingdoms, it would be Varys. He's always seemed to have the people first in mind. And yes, he does seem to be an opportunistic, that he will jump from king to king to king. But I think it's doing trying to find what would be the best for the people. And in the end, everyone's always been out for themselves, trying to have their just quest for power or wealth. or And Varys... What is he trying to get in the end always? It seems he's trying to find a just ruler for the Seven Kingdoms. I said, listen, I'll, I'll bend the knee. I'm not happy about it, but I want what's best for my people. Well, you, well, you, you talked about Tyrion there, and I want to ask one question. She gives Tyrion a direct order to send a raven for Jon Snow, say, to come down. She makes a point to emphasize to bend a knee. Tyrion leaves that out of the message that he's sending to Jon. Did he leave it out because he knew that John would object to it and it would make it harder for him to come down south? Or was there another ulterior motive for leaving that piece out? Oh, man. I mean, that's a that's a fucking non-starter for Jon Snow. He's not bending the knee. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. He needs to get him down there to even have the conversation. Uh, there's no way that Jon Snow is going to get on a ship and go down there if, if in the Raven itself. Not to mention the fact that it would embarrass him uh, and create a you know situation. I mean, you talk about the, if the, the Lords of the North see that, the bend the knee in that Raven, there's, there's no way in hell that he's getting out of there. I just hope Daenerys doesn't have a problem with him leaving it out. That she doesn't take that as a betrayal of an order. But we'll see. Yep. Well, one member that was not part of the original small council but then visited Dragonstone was, of course, the Red Priestess. That she says that Jon Snow and Danny will have a hand in bringing the dawn. What does bringing the dawn mean, Gene? And how does it play into what we saw on screen? So Melisandre, as Big D pointed out in the Instacast, she's got a different stance on prophecy now. She says that they could be tricky things. And so she's bringing this this prophecy of bringing the dawn. This is going to be the the promised one that, that is a, a savior of the land. And so we've seen different monikers for this hero, uh, the prince that was promised, the last hero. Uh, there are similarities between the tales that are leading people to to believe that each hero is all the same person. So... When we're first introduced to Melisandre um, and Stannis Baratheon, she she thinks that he is that hero, and uh, the legend comes from these you know ancient texts, and they say that the Lord of Light will uh, will choose a, a champion to fight the darkness that is that is coming. Well, th- this goes back to the Long Night, and Azor High was the actual one who came and, and brought it to an end. So the, the prince that is promised is a, a return of that. A chosen one. So the Red Priestesses have been you know, searching for that chosen one. And, and Gene, there's a prophecy that foretells who that could be or what characteristics uh, th- that prince, or now we've learned from Missandei that in the vernacular, in High Valerian, that uh, the word could be prince or princess. It's not gender specific. So, so what did that uh, prophecy tell? 
So there are key points to the prophecy, and this is you know a rough, rough idea of what they are. One is that they, what they call a bleeding star will signal they're coming. So we've seen this red star that appears, a red comet really that appears uh, earlier in the, in the show, and it corresponds with a lot of different characters. Notice it; uh, it's brought up several times if you go back and kind of watch. Also, part of the prophecy is that this this hero will be reborn among salt and smoke. Uh, that they will f- wield a fiery weapon, uh, possibly Lightbringer, which we'll get into in a moment, um, and that the weapon's creation will require the sacrifice of a loved one. Uh, they also, that they will wake stone dragons, and that they must be uh, born with dragon blood. Uh, so many people have speculated about lots of characters, but it seems at this point in the game, it's kind of being narrowed down here to John or Daenerys, or possibly both. Yeah, so basically this is Game of Thrones' The Force Awakens. I I hate that you brought it up, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, uh, I mean, prophecies run strong in this and, and I like that they could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, again, uh, Melisandre seems like she just wants to believe everybody is though. She tells, you know, she tells Stannis Baratheon and then she brings back Jon Snow and she's like, oh, you're the prince that was promised. And it's like, come on, like, like, l- 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 let's try to narrow it down. You're not very good at this. First it was Anakin, then it was Luke. You always compare it to Star Wars, and it's just a, it's the basic story of a hero's journey. And in both of the stories, you tell that basic tale. You start from nothing. Then you actually realize that there's something more to you. You have an enemy. You overcome obstacles. You learn. And it's the same tale. Yeah, all, Star Wars. All I'm saying is that there is a character or a thing called Lightbringer in this Game of Thrones universe. And there's something called a lightsaber in the Star Wars. And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. But thankfully, in the Game of Thrones universe, they go a little bit darker. And so Lightbringer had to be, you know, basically forged in, in, in the heart of a love. So, I mean, that's uh, it's a little bit darker. The Red Sword of Heroes is not, uh, it's not a green, green sword of Luke. Or possibly the death of a loved one after maybe a childbirth. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, I I surrender. I surrender. (laughs) No. All right. So, no, getting back to this. So so what is Lightbringer, uh, Big D? Uh, So Lightbringer is a a legendary sword uh, that was forged by Zora Hai when the the Long Knight, uh, he he first attempted to create the blade, and I think he worked it uh, over 30 days, and then he quenched it in water. It broke. Uh, he then worked the next one 50 days, and he tried to temper it by uh, driving it into the heart of a lion. Uh, it again shattered. Uh, third time, he, I think, worked it for 100 days and nights until he was finished. Uh, and he decided that the way he could temper the blade was that he needed to make a sacrifice. So he drove it through his wife's heart, uh, and that was what did the trick. And it broke into flames, uh, and this was the legendary sword that helped end the long night. And that's why now when you're watching uh, Barak Dundarian with his sword that appeared to be a parlor trick at first in the, the trailers that we've seen now, it appears that he can light it on command. So this very well could be the legendary sword, but we still don't know who is the chosen one or the prince that was promised who would wield it. Uh, still three players on the board, and we can discuss that on Thursday, which one you have your bet on. I have my pick. So is that like Mjolnir? Like Thor's hammer, right? Anyone can wield the hero sword. Whether how that person uses that sword is what the prophecy says. 
I, I don't know enough there. We're going to get picked apart. I'm okay. surprised I was actually even able to get out what I was. <laughs> Listen, if you know more about the Lightbringer, I want to know more about this. Write into us, hosts at Chat on TV. Well, there, I would imagine there's certain people in Westeros that don't believe the prophecy of Lightbringer, nor do they believe that winter is even coming. In fact, close to the wall in Winterfell, we had lords uh, under Jon Snow that still were having a hard time buying what his story is. Well, you, you can imagine, most of the people in the Seven Kingdoms have not seen a dragon. So they think, ah, whatever, it's legend. It doesn't exist. When you start talking about the long night and you talk about the army of the dead, people don't believe it. How are you going to get them to realize the danger unless they see it? Jon Snow is the only one who knows it. And this episode drove it home so much to the point where I started to question, what does he have to do to make people realize the threat? So you mentioned the Northern Lords. When he's reading Daenerys's letter, and he mentions that you haven't seen the dead, you don't know what our enemy is, and he mentions that she has dragons. The Lords and the Bannermen, they snicker and laugh at him. He's the King of the North. But they think it's so ridiculous because they, they've never seen this. I don't know how he's going to get anyone to believe in it unless he somehow shows them. And I don't know if that's a complete stretch, but is there any way that John can make people believe the threat without seeing it? Or does he have to come up with a way to, to make them see it and believe it? I mean, they're following John. They, they believe in him. They have faith in him. But at the same time, it makes it a much more immediate and, and present threat. It's kind of like... Um, you know, do, do you want people to, to mobilize slowly and and without haste or really to p- put the fear into them? And, you know, it could be as simple as just showing them uh, for, for themselves. I mean, you capture you capture one uh, a white and you bring it around. I don't know if they, if they can get if they have a range where if they get away from the White Walkers, they cease to operate. But I mean, that would be a, a pretty good uh, clear indicator. What's, what's strange to me is that we have this world that, you know, you mentioned that most people haven't seen dragons, but. We have this world where magic is clearly present, um, and and you have things like the wall. You have things uh, like, I mean, in the north, essentially, the, the, there's still a lot of people worship the old gods, and so they're you know they're um, they're nearly pagan. And so, in that sense, it seems odd to me that there is so much skepticism. Really, I, I, you think that they'd be more willing to believe? I mean, fuck, you got direwolves running around. Like it seems like you know the, the dead rising does not seem that odd. Why would anybody follow the old gods? They, they haven't showed us much. It, the Lord of Light, he's out there bringing back people from the dead. Uh, he's doing quite a bit. I'm, I'm following the Lord of Light if I'm uh, in the Seven Kingdoms. And, but you have to remember that the Lord of Light is not even in the top three religions in Westeros, right? So you've got the, you got this, the, the faith of the Seven is, is the first. Uh, second to that, you've got the Old Gods. And, and third to that, you know, you've got the religions of the Iron Islands. But... The, the the Lord of Light is a that's a cult at best. Cult at best. They put on one hell of a show. <laughs> yeah, if, 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 you, if you bring back somebody <laughs> from the dead, you know, don't sell me on your little witchcraft trickery and the the weirwoods. I don't want to Eddie that. You bring my friend back from the dead five or six times, like Barrick. Sign me up. If I see a smoke monster, yeah, coming out of Melisandre, all doubts are washed away. I'm going to bend a knee and yeah. start bowing down. Wait, but what the hell? We just had sex and you're already pregnant with a smoke monster? Yes, please. I'll say, this is the kind of religion that excites me. But the problem here that I have with this whole story, this whole story arc, is that how can you have North Bannermen who know that Jon Snow died? 
And here's here's a guy who was resurrected and is telling you, guys, I was dead. Uh, they stabbed me, and now I'm king in the north. Uh, how can you not believe me that there's White Walkers and shit like that? Here's the scars that I have. Someone try and kill me right now. You can't. You know why? Because I'm resurrected from the dead. I'm invincible. I'm Jon Snow. Guess what? Sometimes people survive. Just because the rumors about John being resurrected, it doesn't make it real. You could think he was at the edge of death and somehow he survived. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a portion of the Northern Bannermen who think he still, you know, had, had run away from his responsibility and his sworn oath to the Night's Watch. So just because the rumors of him being brought back from the dead, that doesn't make it real. If you see a white, if they can somehow demonstrate a white, whether it's a full white or a part of a white, that to me is the only way you're going to get people to buy in and realize the threat and to put all our other things aside. They're worried about you can't trust Lannisters and you can't trust uh, the Targaryens, the Mad King. I remember what he did. They're focused on, on petty human things without realizing the supernatural threat that could potentially be out there. All right. So here's what here's what Jon Snow should do. He should get Melisandre, Beric, and uh, the mountain all in one room together and be like, listen, Beric, show your fucking sword. And Beric like flips it on and the flame comes on. <laughs> then he goes to Melisandre. He's like, hey, why don't you go ahead and take off that red choker? And then right before everyone's eyes, she turns into an old crazy looking woman. Then he goes to the mountain. He's like, I don't even know what this fucking dude is. Is he alive? Is he not? Whatever. But the point is there's dragons and there's white walkers. You know what I mean? Like that's what he should be doing right now. So he could put on a freak show like you recommended. I'm, call- I'm taking I, I, it on the road. I just hope it doesn't turn into like Jurassic Park where they go hunting velociraptors and it's going to end up with Jon Snow being like, clever girl, as he gets <laughs> hit from the side. Jurassic World. Life finds a way. Uh, but the uh, you know the other thing that happens with Jon Snow is he seems to have an encounter very similar to that of his father with Littlefinger down in the crypts. I was wondering whether this was just Littlefinger not having his finger, for lack of a better word, on the pulse of what's going on. You know, he tells John we haven't had a time to to really talk. But he brings up that he was in love with John's mother and that he loves Sansa the same. That Cat wasn't fond of John as a child. He's discussing the fact that he delivered Ned's bones back to Winterfell as a gesture of goodwill. Littlefinger to me seems like he's testing John to see how far he could push him, much like Ramsay. Do you agree, or is that just a miscalculation on Littlefinger? Yeah, I, so I have this friend who will always text me, hey, what's up with your sister? What's going on there? I loved her. You know, is she as, is she as hot as your mom? Um, I never said that. <laughs> I never no, said that. no, but that would it's be your, like... It's, the, your, no. <laughs> it's your adopted sister. <laughs> And I, I never mentioned your mother. So you and Littlefinger. Of the, no, but I mean, that basically is the equivalent of a friend saying, hey, what's up with your sister? Uh, I used to have the biggest crush on your mom growing up. Uh, how about I get with your sister now? That would anger you, right? Gene, you've got all sisters and, and you've got all girls on your side of the family. You were raised by sisters. Did any ever any of your gr- childhood friends come over and uh, pull that line on you? Oh yeah, well, uh, our our old friend the King B, who who writes in on occasion, uh, has had a crush on my mom for years, and, uh, and bring brings that up all the time. That's why he won't be invited to any theoretical wedding I have because it would it would freak my uh, my mom out too much. But you know this this character of uh, of Littlefinger, uh, this goes back way back. I mean, you, you think of Othello uh, in Shakespeare's uh, Iago. I mean, that's th- this is guy to a T, right? He can actually cement his 
legitimacy and and make himself feel seem more rational if he makes John seem irrational, right? If he makes John seem like a loose cannon, he is totally testing him here. And as we mentioned on the Instacast, it is complete folly for John to show strength here because he's leaving. And so you either execute this guy or take him with you. You do not leave him alone after threatening him with your sister as she is in charge of Winterfell in the North. It's just idiotic. The problem is he is a lord. He's the lord of the Vale, so John just can't kill him. He doesn't want the Northern Army to be reduced. And again, Littlefinger's correct. Without the Army of the Vale, John would have been dead. There's one element that I picked up second time through. As John leaves, Littlefinger's watching him go. He looks up at Sansa standing on the, the second level of Winterfell, like the balcony. The scene bleeds into Arya meeting Nymeria. There's that howling as Littlefinger looks onto Sansa. I got a real subtle vibe that he has now made the biggest mistake that will eventually lead to the last wolf in Winterfell taking him out. Well, Littlefinger, uh, if he were to pass away, if he were to get killed... It would knock off one of the more interesting characters on Game of Thrones. But uh, this episode also highlighted a character who, you know, has shown up a couple times, not had a lot of screen time. But the more that he is on screen, the more I want to know about this character. And that is of Randall Tarly. I believe that he's a character to watch and may come into play in the big battle that's, you know, just across the horizon. Yeah, there's a couple things that Game of Thrones always does that tell you, watch this scene. One is a prophecy. Always pay attention to the prophecy or a vision. Uh, two is anytime a character is is kept alive uh, under extreme circumstances, like a, like a Jorah, you, you know that he's going to come into play in some big way, right? They're not going to put him through all that and then just, you know, have him die off. Um, so another thing you'll see is if somebody's brought over a long period of time. And what we see here with, uh, with Randall Tarly is that this guy's got a long history. You just may not remember him uh, throughout the show. And I took a quick poll of people watching with me. I said, does anybody remember this guy? They said, no. Well, say, you know, if he looks familiar to you, there's a reason for that. That's Sam's father. He, he was instrumental in handing uh, Robert Baratheon his, really his only military defeat. Uh, and so he is exactly the general that the Lannisters would need to take on a, a superior force, say dragons. Uh, he could be absolutely critical in, in their victory, and so they need him on their side. But as Big D and I discussed off the air, uh, this guy is is very principled. Uh, he is loyal, and he is sworn to an opposing house. So that that presents some problems for Jamie in trying to sway him. Yeah, I think it would be disappointing. You, you know, Randall was enough of a man of principle that he openly he mocks Jamie a bit as Jamie's trying to convince him, and he said, "We don't slit people's throats at weddings." He's telling Jamie what he thinks of the Lannisters and what he thinks of their honor, that, that he holds his family's a high esteem. For God's sake, he sent poor Sam away because he felt Sam was an embarrassment to the family as a man. So for him to all of a sudden flip at the idea of becoming the warden of the South or becoming a general in the Lannisters' army, I don't know if I buy it. It doesn't seem in his character. Yeah, the important thing to understand here is that there's a concept of a vassal house, right? So the so the Tarleys are vassal to House Tyrell, meaning that they are a house that has pledged fealty to a, a, a major house, a minor house that has pledged fealty to a major house. So in order for him to assist the Lannisters, he would need a way out that made sense from a from an honor and prestige perspective. Now, obviously, becoming Warden of the South is a huge honor, but how does he do it without looking uh, like he's betraying anybody? And He's got to make sense of that in his own head, and that's going to be a, a tough act to pull off. 
And I, I kind of see like this this father seeing Sam redeemed right before his death situation. Like, you know that old trope? I, I can feel that coming on. No, there's no redemption. He told Sam that he's going to sit and read about the adventures and the achievements of other men. He, he thinks he's a piece of garbage. There's no way that Sam will redeem himself in his eyes. The only oh. way it would be poetic is if Sam decides to take that stolen Valerian sword and kill his father with it. I think what's going to happen is that they're going to see each other on the battlefield. And where? And hold on. Tarly, how do you get Sam onto a Tarly, battlefield? Tarly is going to be struck down by a, a white or a white walker, or maybe the king, uh, maybe the, the knight's king, oh, you're- or, or one of his lieutenants. And right as he's dying, he sees Sam take the Valerian steel and kill the white walker. And then he's like, son, I was always proud of you. I always have been. Um, that's how I imagine uh, me reconciling with my, my own father on the battlefield. I think we had a better chance of seeing Hot Pie riding a dragon than that happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and we can also be thankful that Roger is not a writer on the HBO staff. Well, speaking of uh, fantastic writing and uh, individuals in America not understanding what a word is, uh, eunuch, the most searched keyword on Sunday. I don't think a lot of people knew how, how eunuchs had sex, uh, but they showed us. I think they didn't show us. I mean, people people were afraid that we're going to have an American Gods sort of CGI crotch, and I'm I'm really glad. Again, just like they didn't do the the vision in the fire, they they left it to our imagination, but that they gave us enough to see that they they focused on the more important parts. That there was an intimacy there. That they uh, that they had uh, other ways of of making people uh, uh, tick rather than 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 dick. That rhymed. Yeah, and upon second viewing, that, that scene was even more emotional for me. They do a great job, Asma Sandy is, is taking off, finally after Grey Worm agrees to let her take his pants down and see him. They do a close-up shot on Grey Worm. We've seen Grey Worm as a stoic warrior. He's never been rattled or shaken. His mouth is opened, he's breathing, his eyes are darting around the room. In this close-up shot, you can feel the emotion and the embarrassment and everything that he has gone through his entire life, just on that one still beautiful shot of his face. I thought it was awesome. People were objecting about the nudity. I'm glad they just didn't give us like some kind of, like you said, CGI like Ken doll. Even though I'm curious how how that might work, I, I didn't need to see it. It would have detracted <laughs> from the emotional component and the impact of the scene. Well, let me ask you guys an honest question. Did you really truly know what a eunuch meant or means? Yes, yeah, right. absolutely. Because millions of people did not understand what a eunuch is. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense from a, from a standpoint. If you're trying to make a military that is, that is without uh, desire, that is not you know, swayed by a need for sex, uh, you still want to have you know, top efficiency. And so having uh, the pillar, per se, uh, makes uh, going to the restroom a lot easier. Yeah, that was my question. Um, I mean, and it, and it really does uh, uh, serve a lot of functional purposes. But the the, the odd part about all that is the, is just the logic there. It's it's like when people say to you know, go and uh, and and emasculate um, child predators or to, or just you know just yeah cut, cut all their dicks off. Like that's going to stop them from being child. Pre- no, it doesn't stop that. Desire doesn't. It, it's in the brain. It's not in the in the pants. So it's a little. It's it's even a weird concept. But apparently for the unsullied, it works. Well, the Sullys uh, are known for their strength and valor in battle, and uh, that leads us to our final topic for tonight, the big, giant seafaring battle uh, that was previewed in uh, a lot of the trailers for this season. But 
I don't think anything could have prepared us for how cinematic and how amazing uh, that battle truly was. Yeah, I questioned last night what that apparatus was that was on the front of uh, Euron's ship, the Silence. And that is a naval ram. But it's not just a normal naval ram. It is shaped into the the, the mythological creature, the Kraken. Uh, so when he rams into the ship, the Kraken and that naval ram punctures Yara's hull. Then they drop what's called a corvus, which was that looked like a spike drawbridge which they used to actually latch on to ships. And this actually was used way back to the Roman military. They'd use it for a a boarding device for naval warfare. Uh, Were you also blown away by the the size of the silence and how it dwarfed the other ships? Yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, how did they they come upon a thousand ships so quickly? Uh, Shit, how did you build a ship that big uh, and and maneuver it without being noticed? I thought it was uh, I thought it was very interesting that they were able to penetrate that deep into the fleet. um, And also that, you know, at a time of war, knowing that they had uh, Euron hot on their trail, why the hell they were caught off guard like that? I mean, we're we're sitting there, you know, trying to get busy over some ale. Uh, You know, meanwhile, nobody's watching out for an attacking armada. Hey, but but look at us. We weren't expecting he could have built a thousand ships that quick. Maybe they thought the same thing. They're like, ah, we we got a couple months. Uh, Euron doesn't have that many trees. He's not going to be able to build a fleet that quick. But it's just not his his shipbuilding skills that are on point here. It seems as if he is... He's the Captain Jack Sparrow of Game of Thrones. Uh, no man can can meet his his uh, sword uh, and, and axe and and the fact that he can take down sand snakes uh, as easily as he does. Euron's a force to be reckoned with. Where has he been the last seven seasons? Well, I believe he's been in exile, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he says he says in episode one, you know, that being exiled is basically the best thing that could have ever happened to him, um, and and you see why now that he's had time to grow strong and and to you know become a a terrifying force in Westeros. Oh, yeah, I think he's a combination of of some of the better villains throughout the series. He has the panache and the personality, the charisma of of the Red Viper. I think he has also then that dark insane side of of ramsey but you mix that with the the physical stature and the ability of maybe someone like a like the hound or like the mountain and he is a a perfect storm of evil smart detail-oriented mission driven but also completely batshit crazy but do you think it was a fact that he we were seeing euron was so much better than the sand snakes or was it they didn't live up to the hype and to their reputation from the books I mean, I spoke about it on the Instacast. I thought it was very strange that they could uh, be so effective against Jamie Lannister and Braun. Uh, Braun is, is no, not to be fucked with himself. And so, you know, it was really strange that two of them. And again, let, let's, let's, you know, I mean, let's not pick apart the reality of a show that's got, you know, dragons and, and the dead rising here. But this guy's been fighting multiple people before he even encounters the Sand Snakes. And somehow he's able, able to uh, beat them. Uh, you know, two on one, I, I think that it speaks to the fact that they're just trying to give us a measure of how good he is. So this guy is not that this wasn't luck. And this wasn't the sand snakes being sloppy that he is just that good. So we can assume by that rationale that he could take out Braun just as easily. 
I think it also goes down to the weapons that the Sand Snakes were using. They're for you know, more open field combat. When you're in closed quarters battle, like on a ship, what the hell are you going to use a whip for? Or a spear. You need something like a dagger or a large melee weapon. And that's potentially why Tain with the dagger is the only one that survives. And by her surviving, it clicked. I was thinking that Ilaria was the gift to give back to Cersei. No way. It is now Illyria's daughter. The gift that you're going to pay back is having to watch your child die. So I think they're going to definitely take the two prisoners back to King's Landing, uh, and Euron's going to give the gift of vengeance to Cersei. I mean, that, and that might be true. I, I do agree with you there. But a lot of people are not only just talking about Alaria and the gift, but also why Theon just jumped off ship. Now, there are two camps. There's the one that says Theon had a relapse of PTSD, uh, this he's a broken man still. He can't come back from that, and he the easiest way out is for him to jump ship. Then there's those in the opposing camp that say he shared a moment with Yara. Yara gave him the nod to jump ship, right. and by jumping ship, he then became the hero because both of their lives are spared. Thoughts? What camp is this? Is this crazy camp? This is crazy Where are you camp. This? Roger Roper, I'm your camp counselor. No, that was a betrayal. That look that Yara gives him is a look of disgust and utter betrayal. Yeah, I don't think that she, that she was complicit in him in him jumping out. She didn't want him to do that. But at the same time, I saw several people today uh, on on social media saying that uh, that he's a coward. They kept using that term, coward, and he's not a coward. He's conditioned. So he there are cues that are that are setting him off. It's not that he's so afraid of Euron. It's what he's seeing going on around him. He's seeing the tongues being cut. He's he's experienced that sort of torture. And so it's an overload for him and he needs to get out of that situation. Uh, he's going to be no good. If he goes into a fight like that, he, he can't stand his own at all. And so it's not a matter of um, him even making, who knows if that's even a conscious decision for him, but rather it's just, it's a matter of conditioning that this is Ramsey Bolton's last laugh. You know, even though he's dead, his, his legacy lives on and what he's done to Theon. Yeah, if you've ever seen a soldier suffering PTSD, uh, a, a car backfiring little thing can make them relive those memories, and it's not by conscious choice. It doesn't make them a coward. Theon was brutalized and butchered for a prolonged period of time. That's part of him. That's who he is now. Uh, he's never going to be any good, and I think it would have been a complete betrayal if he did man up and decide to fight Euron it wouldn't have been something he was capable of. Yeah, but people love to shit on Theon. People love to mindlessly troll him on every forum and every social media outlet there is. But Big D, you're in the military. If you are placed in that same situation that Theon is, where you could either man up or try to get into some attack, which most likely would result in your sister being killed and yourself being killed as well, or... Do you just like escape? Like, what would you do in a situation like that? If you're tortured to the point where you assume a new identity of reek and you everything that you are down to your core has been broken down and removed from you, there is no way that any human being could survive that and be expected to, like you said, man up. I'm surprised Theon is even on that ship. And forget about people punking him and, and trolling him online. 
his sister trolls him a bit. He's been castrated. Do you really need to flaunt your sexuality in front of him and get it on? It's it's rude. So he's he's got a, a, a rough deal in life. I don't see it getting any better. So him jumping off ship, even if he survives a little bit, there's no chance at redemption. His life is in tatters and ruins. And the show does a great job of showing just before that scene exactly where he is, you know, mentally. I mean, essentially, he is he wants to play the role of servant. That's that's what he prefers. That's what he's comfortable with. He doesn't want to be a warrior. He doesn't want to be in that situation. He's being forced into that situation by his family. But I mean, what about last season? What about when he saved Sansa, right? If it weren't for him, Sansa would still be Ramsay's prisoner. And, you know, the, he, he, you saw the, his redemption arc last season. All of a sudden, now he falls back into it. So I don't know. I mean, is it keeping true to the character? Probably. Uh, it's definitely more believable than, you know, I, I thought that he was going to die. I thought he's going to pick up a sword and they're going to kill Yara and they're going to kill Theon. And then that's their song, swan song. Now there's a chance that he's going to be redeemed again, but is Yara going to believe him? I don't know. I just don't see how this all ends well. Well, we've talked about that. This show is, is less about black and white and about grays. There's no good and evil. You know, good people do bad things. Bad people do good things. Not everyone has a positive redemption arc. It's not realistic. So for his minor arc of redemption to just fall completely flat is right up there with what George would write. And, and I would not expect Theon to become anything more than he is right now, a shell of his, of his former self. Well, the, the other thing is just let the sharks eat him, right? I mean, come on. In these big naval battles with their ships and there's blood in the water, where are the sharks eating Theon? He's just fucking sitting there in the water. Are, there, are we to believe that there's no sharks in Westeros? I don't know that we've seen any sea creatures. <laughs> well, well, we know there's a kraken. There's at least a legend well, of a kraken. Well, th- what's really cool about that is, uh, uh, and this was pointed out in some of the forums, did you know that the reason for the name and the reason that none of the crewmates talk is because in the source material, Euron's crew all are mutes. They all have had their, their tongues taken out. Did you guys pick up on that? I mean, you clearly saw the tongues being cut out. Some people thought they were like pulling teeth or something, but I mean, it's if you go back and watch it, it's very clear that it is a there's a sawing motion yeah. and tongues being pulled out of mouths. So I think it's it's pretty clear. I didn't know that that's why it was called silence. So it's pretty it's pretty devious. I think it's an effective way to try to limit uh, the potential for a mutiny when guys can't talk about their plans. It's hard to do that with drawings and hand signals. Yeah. Well, those action scenes, though, were, much, like I said, in the Instagram, much better than that of Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Uh, I mean, the the, the, it was the choreography, to be able to fight Hold and on. then move at the same time when, the, when, the, when there's fireballs coming at you. Oh, so good. Do you even watch those movies? What, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5? Yeah. I watched the first four. I'm not going to watch. Them. The first movie is fantastic. I love the second one as well. Third and fourth and fifth. No. Nah. Yeah, I just want to send a shout out to the guys who do real spoilers because they watched part five for me and let me know how bad it was. So <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot, guys. But, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I was reading uh, an article in Time magazine today about uh, about Game of Thrones, and I didn't realize they're spending $10 million on average per episode uh, uh, to film this. And so it comes out to, I think, something the equivalent of, I think it's like five mo- major motion pictures uh, per full season, which is, you know, uh, budget-wise, it's just, that's that's fascinating to me. But I'm telling you, you you can watch this show and you don't have to wonder where the money goes. Just watching Miss Andy and Grey Worm's uniforms in that scene, 
I was amazed at the tailoring. Just everything in the show is quality from the top down. I see that $10 million on screen every weekend. Based on the amount of spending I saw at San Diego Comic-Con and merchandise, I'd say HBO and Warner Brothers are making back all their dollars uh, plus some. Last thing I want to just throw out there to to the listeners and for us to all think about coming into Thursday's uh, small council, after this naval battle, was that Yara's entire fleet or majority of it? Because she was supposed to be ferrying the Dornish forces back to King's Land to lay siege. So what do we think is left of that? And what does this do to Daenerys' plans and how you see that now playing out? Has this been a big blow to her that she can't recover from? We're all assuming that she eventually will sit on the Iron Throne. Is it now a potential that she won't? So write in with your thoughts on that. Uh, and I, I think it's a good topic to kind of riff on a Thursday. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to be part of the conversation, as Big D just pointed out, email us, hosts, at chatontv.com. We'll take the best fan emails from the week and read and respond to them. But you can see all the emails we ever receive on our website, chatontv.com. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about, guys, before we shut down the deep dive and get ready for Thursday? Uh, no, just other than the fact that you know a lot of people have, have written in talking about, uh, and people on Twitter talking about it too, that everyone seems to travel so quickly uh, in Westeros, getting from point A to point B <laughs> with lightning speed. Well, dude, they only got fucking 13 episodes. I mean, come on. <laughs> Give them a break. Shit's got to happen fast. So. They, got, they got Elon Quit Musk. Your bitching. They got Elon Musk there. He's going to make an appearance uh, with his Hyperloop. That's what's going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think um, one thing I want to say is thanks to all the fans. Uh, our downloads have been great. You made us, I think we were number seven again in the uh, TV and film iTunes. Yeah, so, yeah, so we were number seven overall. Uh, in the U.S. for TV and movie podcasts, which is amazing. Uh, but th- there's a lot of people out there who aren't too happy with our pronunciations, with you saying Masandi or me saying uh, Derek Bombarian or <laughs> Gentry. Uh, Gentry. <laughs> the hard geek. Wild- wildings. Yes. <laughs> so, so hold on. So we're not perfect, but we are fans. So if you've made it this far into the episode take an extra second, go to iTunes and just leave us a review of whatever you think is fair. Hopefully it's not a one star because we got a lot of people who like what we're doing. And then we got the few, it seems like book readers who really Whoa. worship the source Whoa. material. Whoa. Whoa. Who, you said that with such contempt. Jeez. No, uh. no, I don't have a problem with the book readers. As long as you don't <laughs> uh, think you're superior or more important <laughs> than those fans who are only TV only viewers. We're all equal here. <laughs> Hey, listen, literate people, you're not so special. <laughs> also, if you did notice a, a mistake on the podcast, I can't imagine that would happen. But if you did, please write hosts at shadowntv.com and make the subject line, um, actually. It'll make it a lot easier for me to gather them all up and feature them on Thursday's podcast. Yeah, yeah, that was a big hit. Uh so far on social media. Well, they, that concludes this week's uh, deep dive episode of On the Throne. Shout out TV's Game of Thrones edition. Uh, please be sure to follow us out everywhere on social media and share with a friend. We're everywhere, including Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. Just follow the title at Shout on TV. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Uh, that website again is ShoutOnTV.com. Email host at ShoutOnTV.com. We're everywhere on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Uh, as Big D pointed out, be sure to share with a friend and leave a five star review that helps the podcast grow. You can also check out 
at our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we review 80s and 90s films from our childhood that you, the audience, select for us to watch. Uh, you can see all the information and all the past episodes and upcoming films at ShatTheMovies.com. On behalf of my two co-hosts, Big D Dickkeeper and Gene Jora Mormont Lions, I'm Roger Roper. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Good night. And be sure to knock twice before joining us on The Throne. <laughs>